You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, today, for a few moments, I'd like to increase our attention uh, towards the issue of global outreach. We're focusing on that all month in different ways. I want to specifically do so by bringing a message this morning designed to help us think about God's heart for the globe, what that looks like and how we go about it. In fact, the message this morning is designed to kind of help set the stage for our mobilization conference, which starts Wednesday evening. It's called The Matter of X. Uh, it's Wednesday evening, Thursday evening, Friday evening. It's designed to really highlight God's heart for multiplication. How do you mobilize the church to multiply? And so my job today is to sort of set the table this morning for the meals that you'll be served by our different planters who are speaking. To do that, I want to just direct your attention to John chapter 4. Would you find that in your Bibles, John chapter 4? This message, which I've entitled, Food, Fields, and Fruit, will take these three things from this narrative and help us understand some principles about multiplication. Now, part of this story will be known to many of you, other parts not so well known, and there's probably folks who've never heard or even encountered this story. It's the story of Christ and his um, interaction with a Samaritan woman. And even more than that, it's really the story of his disciples and their interaction with a whole town. So to make sure you're up to speed about what's happening in John 4, here's the story up to about verse 31. Jesus and his disciples are making their way back to Galilee. And it's wearisome, so the text indicates to us that they're tired. It specifically mentions Jesus, so he sits down by a well, and the disciples, because they're tired and hungry, they go to get some lunch. While he's at the well, a woman comes to draw water from the well. This is the part you may have heard. Some of you have heard the story of the woman at the well. There's been songs about it. There's been messages. It comes from John 4. Well, she's there to get water. Christ strikes up a conversation with her. And what an amazing conversation. It starts by just uh, chatting about water in general. He turns that to where he shows her that really he could give her the kind of water that's not just natural and temporal, but is everlasting and living. And she goes, I want that kind of water. As they continue to talk, uh, he asks about her husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're right, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And so she's just stunned that this guy knows so much about her and talks about living water, and she says, you must be a prophet. That continues, and finally he says, I'm not just a prophet, I am the Christ. Well, she is amazed. She leaves to go into the town where the people are living to tell all of them that she has found the Christ, the Messiah, and to invite them to come back and meet him. In fact, her words are these, come see a man who told me everything I've done. So the town agrees, that's a pretty encouraging, uh, stark uh, invitation, let's go. So while the town is coming to see Christ at the well, The disciples who were out getting what? Lunch. They were out getting food. They're coming back as well. So you have this convergence. You have an intersection about to take place. 
That's where verse 31 picks up. Look with me at your text. John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, now they're back at the well, the town's on their way out as well, and the disciples are urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, and they're thinking strictly in physical terms at this point, has anyone brought him something to eat? We don't see lunch sacks around. There's no bread. There's no basket. But where is he, where is he hiding this food, right? He explains to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And you can underline that phrase and connect it to what he just did. He revealed himself to someone who did not know who he was. She believed and followed him. That's the will of the Lord, and that's what Jesus did. He led people to believe in him and to accomplish his work. Now, he's talking to the disciples here, okay? Do you not say, he says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? In other words, you're always talking about the future. The harvest is still to come. It's a ways away, so to speak. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Connect this verse to verse 30, which says to us that they were coming out of the town and were coming to him. So who do you think is the harvest in this verse? Who's encouraging them to lift up their eyes and see? The town that's coming to meet him. Remember this, this intercession that's taking place at the well? He's saying, guys, look at the town that's coming out to meet us. In verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. In this text, who's the sower? Jesus is. Who are the reapers? The disciples are. But yet they're going to rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. There's no condemnation there. It's just an observation. You were out getting food. I was here doing God's will, but now we're all together. Let's make the best of this moment for spiritual reasons. Here's what did happen, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Watch this next phrase. Because of the woman's testimony. Here's her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days, and I think the implication is with the disciples too. And many more believed because of his word. Do you see the multiplication happening from one woman to a number of townspeople to even more townspeople over a couple of days? They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, <laughs> for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed, say these last five words with me, the Savior of the world. Underline that last phrase, Savior of the world, and draw a line back up to verse 34. When Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What was the will of the Father? That he would come and seek and save that which was lost. That he would save his people from their sins. In this text, that he would be the Savior of the world. And this is a story, a narrative of, of that precisely and specifically happened in the town of Samaria. That's right, the same Samaria we've been talking about in our study of 2 Kings. The town that had the hundreds of years of wicked kings. Multiple idolatrous worship practices and places. Yeah, that town, the, 
the pseudo-capital of the, of the northern kingdom, the wannabe Jerusalem of the ten northern tribes. Yeah, that Samaria. That's the one that Christ had to go through in order to tell these folks who he was and to see many of the townspeople come to himself. Now, before we dive into the meat of this text even more so, I want to talk for a minute about two words that I think are used often in the world of evangelism slash disciple-making. We've used one already. It's the word multiplication. Say it with me. But there's another word that we use often, too. It's called addition. Say that word with me. Both are good words. They're both necessary. But this story really is not about addition. This is a a wonderful story, a remarkably powerful one about multiplication. So let me define these words for you because I want to kind of show you how this passage gives us fundamental principles about multiplying. So here's some definitions. I didn't get these from Wikipedia or from some theological book. I just, I wouldn't say I made them up, but these are my own words. I think they best explain to me and help me kind of get my hands around these two terms. Addition is really disciples made. It's really a collecting of people. That's not bad. Don't hear that wrong or weird. But it's just a collection of people whom God is saving and they gather together. But multiplying is disciples making disciples. It's when those who have gathered aren't just letting one person continue to add to the group, but those who are being added begin to multiply themselves as well. For instance, let's just say that... um, in the ministry moment, I witness to John, or he hears the gospel, and he and I become friends, and so we're both disciples. And so then I reach out, and I see Keith get saved, and he joins. And if that continues, that's just addition. That's not bad, by the way. God ordains addition. Did you know that? Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. We are not knocking addition at all, but it is the first step only. Multiplication is when, after John and I are getting together, then John finds someone, and Keith finds someone, and then the person they found finds someone. Does that make sense? That's multiplication. I think they're both important, and they're both necessary, because I think addition forms the base for multiplication. If you don't have at least some addies, can we call them that? If you don't have addies, you won't have multipliers, True. So we need addies, but at some point, the addies are commissioned to be multipliers. So this is what's happening in the story. Think with me. Who are the addies in the story? Who was added? The townspeople were. Initially, the woman was, yes. But who are the multipliers? The woman was. And apparently some of the townspeople over the next two days. I think the most important multipliers were the disciples. In fact, I would say to you the point of this narrative isn't really about evangelism, even though you can draw some important principles in that. It's really about the lesson Christ was teaching those to whom he would leave his mission. That's why the bulk of the text really is, how does Christ interact with his disciples after the fact? What does he teach them about carrying on the mission and multiplying the mission? I think the the, the real apex of this is between verses 31 and 42. When he says, guys, look what just happened. 
You'll need to replicate this after I'm gone. And they weren't even aware of that yet. But he's laying groundwork. He's teaching them. So I want to take a minute and kind of pick apart these main verses here, 31 to 42. And, and let's kind of see three main contrasts that I think Christ brings out just conversationally throughout the narrative that highlight three fundamental principles about multiplying. First of all, multiplying is spiritually nourishing food for God's people. This may be the, the most stark of the observations this morning because we are so, I, let me start with I, I am so rooted and grounded physically. Aren't you? Do you feel that way? That sometimes you just can't hardly get above or beyond your physical existence to think in spiritual ways. It's hard. Hard to be heavenly minded when you're kind of earthly grounded. I feel that way a lot of times. And so when I, see, when I read that Christ said, I have food that you don't know about, I'm like, where's that food? Let's go find it. I like to eat, right? I mean, I probably like these guys. You're thinking physically. You're thinking earthly, temporally. But Christ was thinking spiritually. And it's amazing to me that he would say, what is it, verse 36? My food, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Here's what Christ is doing in this. Verse, now, now grasp this, church. He is equating, and I would say even um, moving above physical. He's saying that doing God's will is as essential to him and his spiritual life as food is to the physical life. So keep this in mind. He's saying that multiplication, multiplying, is spiritually nourishing. It was to him. It is for God's people. And what's in contrast here is, as I said, as I said the, the physical kind of compared to the spiritual, the eternal versus the temporal. Now, as you think about this contrast here, where he's saying what's really important, what I've nourished myself on is not food you've brought back. It's not food you can't see. It's doing God's will. That's brought me great energy and nourishment. What he's not saying is that the physical isn't important. Listen very carefully to me here. In no sense is Jesus Christ saying that this doesn't matter at all. What he is noting is this, that the physical isn't preeminent. He's showing that that what's indispensable to our spiritual life is, is on the same level as food is to our physical life. You can't live without doing God's work. And in this narrative, what is the work of God? What is the will of God? It's seeing God save sinners. And so can I just affirm to you, and I think you would all agree with this, both corporately and personally, what is one of the most nourishing things that you can see and watch and participate in? It's seeing a lost person get saved. It's seeing God save sinners. And if you've not been involved in that, now watch me here, pay close attention, don't be distracted. If in some way you're not contributing working towards, being part of, a, of a, a group or in the process of seeing that as the ultimate aim, it, that may tell us why you feel spiritually malnourished. Because you've got your ladder against the wrong wall. Now, to the point of the text, let me just 
kind of continue to kind of push on you a little bit here. I think the disciples here were placing their stomachs above the other people's souls. I don't think it was intentional, by the way. Sounds a lot like me and us, doesn't it? I don't think we intentionally say, I'm going to disregard your spiritual needs because of my physical needs. But that is, in essence, what I do sometimes. Probably what you do sometimes. We, we kind of value the natural, physical, over and above the spiritual, internal. I think the woman did this. She was valuing water, and Christ said, I've got living water that will quench your thirst forever. And she's like, really? So you see this contrast throughout this chapter, don't you? Physical in comparison to spiritual. We do this, watch this church, when we see our own physical needs before others' spiritual needs. We fall prey to this. And we need, as we said last week, eyes of faith that see God working, not just eyes of flesh that see our own wishes. Now, as you process this, living a life that values the spiritual work of God, just not our own physical wishes. I would remind you that Jesus stated this very same thing in another teaching opportunity with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 6, he says to them, Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear or where you'll live, but seek, and then the next word, protos, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Could Jesus have been any more clear about the order of priority in his perspective? It's his kingdom first, ours next. It's his spiritual issues first, ours next. Again, he's not saying physical issues don't matter at all. He's just saying they're not preeminent. What is preeminent? God's kingdom. God's business. And that's actually what he was saying. You take care of my business I'll take care of yours. What is God's business? It is saving men and women and transforming them into fishers of men and women. It's saving and sending sinners. It's calling his family together from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Now, this is a tall order, isn't it, church? To have this mindset, to think in that way, that's a tall order. So let me give you one practical habit to begin to develop that will kind of set you in this direction because the, the tendency I think on these points is to be rhetorical to preach it you respond by saying amen but it's hard to live it like how do you think about those items in the world and the globe and our own city how does that work Todd when it seems like I get so grounded I, I, I'm in the same boat you are Todd it's hard to kind of get above that how do you keep God's spiritual matters preeminent while still not ignoring your physical responsibilities how do you do that I think well, there's one habit that helps me, and I think it will help you lean this way and begin to think this way more often. It's the habit of regular fasting. Say, so why do you pick that habit? Here's why. Because there's no other discipline or habit that forces you to deal with what is essential for your physical life like fasting. When you fast, you're saying no to what is essential for your physical life. And you're saying, even that comes under what is actually indispensable for my whole life, my spiritual life, and that is Jesus and his mission. And so whether it's for a meal, whether it's for a day, or whether it's for a few days or even a week, 
when you fast, you are saying and showing there is something more important than even what my body needs to live. And you do that regularly, and your mind will begin to think about God's kingdom first and your second. So I would challenge you. Join us where we are in our own church-wide journey. We're on, I think it's day eight of our current 40 days of, of prayer and fasting. Maybe you're just using the prayer prompts we've given you at the beginning of each week to pray every day for specific items. You're praying for revival. And, or maybe you'll actually pick a day a week and you'll begin to fast for a meal. Or maybe you're going to pick a day a week and you'll fast for the whole day. I've written about fasting before. I can send you those. You can just leave a card with me and I'll send you some information. Chris wrote about it last Saturday. If you received that email, then you, you're well aware of some uh, that information. So there's, there's much we've kind of said and written about fasting. I would encourage you not to think, well, that's just something that really spiritual people do. It's actually a tremendously helpful habit to see this kind of attitude develop in your life. When you learn to, to say no to something that actually is, is physically essential as a way of expressing there's something even more indispensable to my life. That's Jesus. His work and His will. So keep that in mind, okay? It's one of the ways that we can begin to lean into this first principle that multiplying is actually spiritually nourishing. And it puts us in the framework of thinking, what is God doing around me in saving and sending sinners? How can I be part of that? Here's a second principle I want to show you. Multiplying is nearer than you think, both in location and time. Just jot that down, would you? Multiplying is nearer than you think, both in location and time. Again, I love verses 35 and 36 here in which he states the obvious to the disciples. Do you see this? They're coming back and they're saying, hey, where's this food you say you have? We don't see it. So he's aware they're not going to see the fields either, right? They're thinking about the harvest. It's not till another four months. And he says, no, guys, the, the harvest is right in front of you. Look at three words here in verses 35 and 36. The word see. He says, see the fields. The word white. And then the word already. All of those words show us that Christ is here painting a second contrast. He's saying, get out of the future and into the present. If the first contrast is about earthly versus uh, spiritual, physical, you know, that contrast... This is about, guys, quit thinking about the future and start thinking about the here and now. In other words, the fields aren't miles away. They're not months away. The fields are right in front of you. This understanding is heightened when you think about the word white. In that agriculture, when a field was at the very edge of being wasted, it would turn white. In other words, you had... Very little time left to get the crop. If you didn't act now, you would lose it. So when he says to the disciples, guys, lift up your eyes, look. And the town's coming out to see them. And then he says that if the fields are white to harvest. He's saying with very forceful metaphorical language in an agricultural economy, guys, we can't waste this opportunity. That's powerful. This may not pass our way again. This matters in the moment. He's undoubtedly wiping away the grime from the windshield of their eyes. He's bringing them into the present. He's moving them from intention about the future to action in the present. Isn't that just like us? I, mean, I find myself in this again. 
I've always got good intentions about what I'm going to do. Are you that way sometimes? But do I ever then just go knock on that neighbor's door, make that phone call, send that text, write that email, invite that person? Next week, I'm going to do that. I'm going to have that conversation next month. I'm going to send that email tomorrow. Sometimes my life is a life of intentions rooted in really good motives. But I'm like the disciples. I'm thinking, yep, harvest is still to come. And sometimes Christ needs to shake and say, guys, the harvest isn't miles away or months away. It's right here in front of you now. Look at your town. Look who's all around you. In plain terms, he's saying, you are already in the field. Listen, church. He would say to us as well, you are already in the field. And the harvest is right around us. I was reminded of this when I was talking to Jason Laxton. Uh, I talked to him this week as well as last week. But he, he just was sharing some things about how God had worked in his life. You'll hear Jason this Thursday evening. He'll be speaking along with Carlos. But he was sharing some things about how God saved him. And there's one part of it I just I wasn't aware of. God saved Jason as a young businessman probably 15, 20 years ago. He was a young businessman in Des Moines. And one of the guys working with him at that point was already a Christian. He could sense Jason was thirsty and kind of curious, but he didn't know how to approach him sometimes, and so he would sometimes hesitate. But on this one morning, he just went into Jason's office and he said, Jason, can I just talk to you about something? And so they had this conversation, but Jason was in a hurry, had a lot on his plate, and so it didn't go real well, to be frank with you. And Jason relayed to me how he said, I remember just telling that guy, can you just get out of my office, this spiritual stuff, this, this uh, witnessing stuff, like, you know what, just leave me alone. There's the door. Was pretty adamant, like, you know, this isn't the place. But the, the guy who was his friend sensed, like, the moment's now. I just need to kind of cross the threshold and take this risk. It didn't go well, he thought. A few weeks later, he was at a business meeting in Kansas City, and the business had offered a chapel service on a Sunday morning during their weekend meeting. And because Jason was kind of curious, he thought, I ought to go hear what they say. He went, and that's where God saved him. Now, he didn't see that friend, oddly enough, again. I'm not sure why they were working together, but he says, I, I didn't ever see me and explain what happened until about a few months ago. I ran into him at Menards. This is 15-plus years later. And he recognized him, but Jason has since lost his hair like me, and he's grown a beard, and he looks a lot different. And so this friend didn't recognize him, so he says, aren't you? And he calls his name. And he says, I am. He says, well, I'm Jason Laxton. He said, you are? And he says, I've got to finish the story for you. He said, you know that morning when you witnessed to me because you knew the moment was now, that the harvest was in front of you? He said, uh, I know I didn't respond well to you, but in a few weeks I heard the gospel and got saved. He said, I want to thank you for witnessing to me and sharing with me the truth. And he said, God used that to keep planting seeds in my life. And, of course, the guy at Menards is like, you're a Christian? <laughs> you just can't believe this, you know. He says, listen to this. He says, God saved me. I began to grow. Uh, he said, I've, I've uh, now entered the ministry. I'm pastoring. He said, I uh, was in Missouri. He said, now I'm moving to Albia. Lord willing, I'll be planting a, a church there soon. He said, my life is completely turned around. He said, thank you for just having the courage to see the fields right around you. And that was a lesson for me, you know. 
Sometimes it is hard, it's difficult. And sometimes on the surface, it doesn't seem to go well. But who knows how God is going to grow that seed, right? I have a question for you. Who in your life is white unto harvest? Who in your life needs to come from the future and four months away to like today? And I admit to you, that can be a scary thought. You may be thinking what might happen or what might not happen, what could happen. Admittedly and granted, all those things can be difficult to process. But eyes of faith see the the harvest as the ones right around us. It's closer than you think, both in location and time. The time is now. The people are close to you. Let's lift up our eyes. Let's see them. They're in the southeast side of Ankeny. They're in North Des Moines. They're in Waukee. They're on the northwest side of Ankeny. They're in Bondurant. They're in Altoona. Huxley. You could list any community. We are already in the field, church. So let's lift up our eyes. Here's a suggestion to help you make this practical, okay? I've just, been, I've just been doing this for about maybe two or three weeks. I've only told our staff about it. In fact, I'm not even sure I've told them all about it. But this phrase, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They're white under harvest. It comes out of John 4.35. So for the last few weeks, I've just been at 4.35 in the afternoon just praying for the people in my life who are white under harvest. I got a list of them. And so every day at 4.35... And now, I don't, you know, spend a long time. I don't necessarily have to be somewhere private. I could be in a meeting. I could be driving. I could be working uh, with people. But at 435, a reminder, let's pray for people who are white unto harvest. And I draw that reference in that time kind of from here. And it helps me remember, well, yeah, where are the fields that are white unto harvest? They're right around me, and I'm in the middle of them. Maybe you want to adopt that every afternoon, 435. Unless you're like Cynthia, she'll do it 435 in the morning. She's already up and at them by that time, I know. Some of you may be as well. But pick a 435. you got two options, right? And then every day at 435, go to your list and just say, Lord, and begin to pray that they will be saved. It will help keep your mind on the fact that you are in the field and that multiplying, you are nearer than you think, both in location and time. So multiplying is nourishing. And it's near us. Lastly, multiplying is a team sport. I love the non-competitive attitude that Jesus not only displays, but he demands. Do you see verse 36, the end of it? I like this word already. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. (laughs) In other words, guys, you're right in the middle of people coming to Christ. Not just the woman, but all the folks coming from the town. And so you're receiving wages and you're gathering fruit for eternal life. But the end result is not that you'll be able to claim your fruit. You know, Peter gets his fruit, John gets his fruit, James gets his fruit. The point is that all of us together can rejoice over the fact that these people now have fruit for eternal life. I I love the way it's not competitive, but cooperative. How refreshing, isn't it? That in the world of Jesus, there really were no superstars. 
everyone had a role. Everyone did their part. Some were sowing, some were reaping, but they all at the end partied together over fruit for eternal life in those that heard. The contrast here would be personal reward versus collective labor. So remember the first contrast? Physical versus spiritual. Remember the second contrast? would be um, um, future versus present. This contrast is more like personal reward versus collective labor. And we're not arguing that personal rewards are bad. We know that 1 Corinthians talks to us about God rewards for us at his judgment seat one day. But in this situation, he's actually downplaying the personal reward aspect, and he's saying what matters most is the collective labor of all of us so that we rejoice together in the end. That's what's happening here. In other words, as followers of Christ, we don't engage in God's work of watching him save and send sinners. We don't do that for our glory or our credit. It's not your name that needs to be recognized. It's not your role that should be maximized. It's it's God's name. It's his heart for the world. And so we come together to rejoice in what he's done, not in what we've done. Frankly, when we give more attention to, to who did what than to what God did, I think we're showing our carnal humanity instead of our spiritual maturity. I base that on 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When Paul actually rebuked the Corinthian believers for having these camps they were in, I'm in the camp of Apollos. I'm in the camp of Paul. I'm in the camp of Barnabas. I'm in the camp of Timothy or Luke. and We don't know how many there were. He actually said this. He says that when you think this way, when you talk that way, he says you're acting carnally. He exhorted them to quit following men in this way, stop glorying in their own spiritual achievements, instead to realize that it is God which gives the increase. Verses 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 3. So as a church, we should take heed to that, not only by the example of Christ here and Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians, but we then should say, wow, it's not about whose name is on the, the birth certificate, so to speak, right? It's God doing the work in us spiritually. So let's come together. Whatever our role was in that, let's magnify and maximize God. I think we'd all be shocked at the amount of work the church could get done if we would get worried about who gets the credit on earth. Truly, multiplication takes cooperation as a team, not competition as superstars. Now, let's just be frank here. This is Christianity in the Western culture. You have your superstar pastors, your superstar preachers, your superstar worship leaders, your superstar missionaries. You got them. And in our culture now, they're all so accessible via technology that, um, you know, there are some folks like, well, I don't need our local church. He's not that good of a pastor. He's not that good of a preacher. He's not near as good as this star over here or this known guy. And sometimes, you know, we can start following men. That's actually unhealthy, spiritually immature to think you wouldn't need a local church in your area with people that you know. You're right. They're not perfect. They're not celebrities. They're not famous. But they're actually people who know you and you know them. That's actually spiritually healthy for you. And I'm not knocking the famous guys who are good in their local churches, and they're well-known. Praise God for that. But they're not going to do your funeral, probably. (laughs) 
They're not going to be the one you call when your marriage is about to crumble. When things go bad at your job, your kid's wayward. They're not going to be your small group leader who every week is tackling life with you in the trenches. They're not that person. So I'm not minimizing their role. I'm trying to get you not to minimize the role of the folks who are right around you. So can we agree that what Christ says here is so practically beneficial? Let's rejoice together in what God's doing. Amen. Let's realize that God gets the credit for that. He gets that done through both sowers and reapers. All of us, in different ways and with different talents, gifts, personalities, are bringing something to the process. The end result is that we would rejoice together in the fruit of eternal life. Can I give you a very personal but I think practical example of this. I hesitate to use their names, but I think it helps the illustration land better. There are three men I want to just use for this illustration, and I could use other people, but I want to use these three for a specific reason. Dave Farnsworth, Jamie Olcott, and Keith Ryan. Remember the day Dave Farnsworth got saved in Nevlin Center? one of our very first services, sitting at tables even still. And during one of our invitations, he raised his hand and said, today I believe that Christ will save me from my sin, got saved. Remember when Jamie Olcott got dragged to church by his wife, blonde a lady who dragged a, a backslidden man to church. God got a hold of him and turned him. He was already saved, but he was just going the wrong direction. God just got a hold of his life and changed that man. An incredible story. And I remember when Keith Ryan pulled his car over the side of the road and called me and said, Todd, I've been hearing the gospel for nine months. He said, I thought I was born again, but I was only good. He said, I'm lost, but today I pulled the car over and I'm asking Christ to save me by his grace. I got saved today. I'll never get that phone call. Three guys who have incredible turnaround stories. Now watch this. At some point, Dave, excuse me, Jamie and Keith left to go help plant Bondurant. They were two of the four families who were instrumental in getting that thing going. It was 40 people total, but they were small group leaders there. and So they left to help plant Bondurant. A year or two ago, maybe or more, Keith and Nikki and their family moved to Nevada. And a year from next month, Keith will actually plant a church near or outside of Reno, Lighthouse Community Church out of the church he's in currently, in Nevada. Isn't that amazing? God saved him. He went to Bondurant just for a few moments on the Nevada, multiplying. Now, Dave stayed here the whole time. Nothing wrong with that, right? Helping, serving, giving. Well, just this past Tuesday, Jamie also has moved to Minnesota. He's pastoring, I think it's um, Anchor Point Church. Now, now you, do you follow what's happening here? Three guys that initially God did his work among this body. Different people, all different roles, people leaning into their life over time. Two of them are left, but David stayed right here. Can I say this to you? All three of those roles are vitally important. We need folks who will stay, and we need folks who will go. Are you with me? Jamie and Keith aren't more spiritual than Dave. They just have a different role. 
They have a different set of giftings, and you can use the word calling. But we need Daves in our church whom God saves, and then they support and help the process of taking some of the Addies. Remember the Addies? Who are commissioned to go and become multipliers. And Bondurant needs to let go, and they did, of Keith and Jamie. So they can go to Nevada and Minnesota and plant churches. So that in the end, in multiple places, watch this. It's not just one person collecting Addies to one place. It's multiple people seeing multiple folks get saved. It's multiplying God's family in all kinds of places. Over that, we rejoice together. And we don't say, well, how big is your church? How many did you have? How many notches on your belt? What's your list like? We don't even say that. We say instead, wow, we thank God that he's brought people together out of that group. He has sent some in other places so that in the end we can rejoice together over the fruit of eternal life. That's a multiplying mindset. That's why multiplication is a team sport. You don't need to sit in your seat and think, well, I'll never pastor a church. I'll never be a missionary. Some of you shouldn't do either one of those. You should work your job faithfully and diligently like you are. In the field where you are, serving, giving, loving, leading your small group, attending faithfully, those things are valuable. And enable those then who do feel like at times, okay, God's calling me to go somewhere else for that multiplication to continue to happen. We're all on the same team, church. Some may be a quarterback, some may be a running back, some may be a cornerback, some may be a lineman, some may be a center. I don't know your role. I just want to, at the end of the day, rejoice in the win. And what's the win? Fruit for eternal life. See, that's why your, your list that you pray for at 435 matters. Because on that list are people who are wide in the harvest. And who knows, they might be one of those Keith Ryan kinds, Dave Farnsworth kinds, Jamie Olcott kinds. You think, man, God will never save them. Oh, that's exactly what he does do. And then they tell someone, then they tell someone, and little by little, God multiplies his family across the globe. But how does it start? It starts when you realize that multiplying is actually very nourishing. So let's get, let's take part in it in some way. It's nearer than you think, and it's a team sport. Those three principles, I think, kind of help us land on this one take-home truth. Will you read this with me? We'll be done. Together, church, say it with me. It takes a team to reach a town with the gospel. A team motivated vertically, yet activated horizontally. That's just these three principles in one sentence. It takes a team to reach a town. And that team must be nourished vertically first. It's the will of God that is of preeminence in this body. There are many things we can do, but there's one thing we must do. And then as we understand that, we're going to be activated horizontally. And that, I believe, based on Acts 1-8, starts right here first and ripples out. So question, what names are in your head right now that are white unto harvest? What's the field like that you're already in? And what are you doing to see God working there? So and then are you finding nourishment from that? 
you're prioritizing that even above your own meal times and your own food intake. Is that more important than even your own physical survival at times? <laughs> when you say that with me, when you process that statement, when you look at that and rehearse it, what goes through your mind? Some of you, I think it was names, and that's what happened to me last night. As I just reviewed my notes, reading the text again, I pulled out my prayer list from the back of my journal slash planner. It's got the names of all of you on there. I began just to kind of flip through there again. And so many of your names have incredible stories of God's work in your life, saving you, you getting baptized. And I just begin to rejoice together in the fruit of eternal life. I mentioned two of them to you already. Well, three of them, really. Dave and Jamie and Keith. Here's some more that I just ran across. This is a few. Emma Day, over here. What a great story in 2013, I think it was. Sergio and Lisa Correa, now at our Bondurant campus. Well, actually, Bondurant Church, not a campus any longer. It's hard to break old habits, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Dave and Rand Bricker. Mike Boone. Nathan Stalzer. Joel Bender. Matt Stewart, Janice Sage, Craig and Stacy Stevens. I could list more. People that many of you had a part in God's work in their life. Many of them have told other folks about Christ. Do, do you see where we're at to this morning? I'm just trying to get you to think in terms of multiplication so that when you come Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you're kind of prepped now. What is God doing? What is he showing us? And hear me well, church. This is the fundamental mindset of a multiplier. Knowing the Father's business is first and living so that more people are commissioned in it, not just collected to it. It's actually believing the words that Jesus left with, the, with his early church leaders. <laughs> they didn't even know they were early church leaders at that point, did they? <laughs> they were just disciples who used to be fishermen. They're following Christ, but they were the ones that were going to lead the first church. And he said to them, as the Father has sent me, so send I, you. May God give us a mindset of multiplication. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.